This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we have the great pleasure of speaking with Kenneth Feinberg, who I think of as kind of a Uber mediator, <laughs> a fund divider, alternative dispute practitioner who's been involved in mediating some of the largest and most tragic of uh, incidents and terrible fact patterns uh, that we've faced in our country. Ken is a graduate of University of Massachusetts Amherst and NYU School of Law. He was a prosecutor in the United States with the Office of the United States Attorney General. Uh, he has extensive experience in private law practice, both as a founding partner of the Case Scholler Law Firm in their DC office, and as a founder of his own practice, the Feinberg Group. Uh, he has led fund distribution efforts for victims and their families in many very high profile cases, including the BP British Petroleum oil spill, the Boston Marathon bombing, the Sandy Hook shooting, and some of the others that we're going to be talking about. He's the author of two highly regarded books, What Life is Worth, which was published in 2005, and Who Gets What, published in 2015. He has received honorary doctorate degrees from Pepperdine Caruso School of Law and his undergraduate alma mater, the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He served as an adjunct professor at top law schools, including Harvard, Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, NYU, and Georgetown. Uh, he serves also on the boards of directors of the Rand Corporation, the Washington National Opera, and the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation. So Ken, I hope I haven't embarrassed you by reciting just a, a few of the things that you've accomplished and been involved in. And thank you very much for joining us in our, in our podcast today. Glad to be here, glad to do it. So you've been involved in both, I assume, more conventional mediations of disputes, efforts to resolve civil litigation, as well as situations where there's a large fund of money that's been put together either by a government, an industry body, or by members of the public where there's a finite sum lots of victims, and we have to come up with a way, you have to try to come up with a way, a way of dividing the money, which is regarded as just and, and fair. Fair summary? For the most part, that's fair as a summary. Be very careful about using words like just and fair when you're talking about providing surviving victims with money for the loss of a loved one. Money rings pretty hollow in those cases. You do the best you can within the American legal system, but I try and shy away from uh, viewing these programs as just or fair. It's more like mercy than it is fairness. Well, in some of these cases, liability is clear and not disputed. If we're talking about cases where there's a, a lawsuit or suits in the background and not just you know, the disaster providing some type of compensation, if not justice, to victims. And the real issue is, a lot of these cases, how do you settle them? There's so many different claims. The potential damages are so large, they may be enterprise threatening to the defendant. I mean, how do you break the logjam to get those kinds of discussions going? Well, the company wants to stay out of the American legal system, which is a roll of the dice in the courtroom. Most companies will do just about anything to avoid juries, judges, and lawsuits. The secret in many of these cases is to convince the victim, the victim, that 
generous compensation efficiently rendered in a cost-effective way very speedily is a better alternative than rolling the dice and the uncertainty and cost of you know, finding yourself in a courtroom. So really you try and explain to both sides what is the alternative? And don't you wanna try and give mediation or claims processing a chance? When these cases come to you, is it typically a situation where the defendant realizes what you've just said, they need to find a way to resolve this, that uh, they, they're prepared to pay some money. They've got a certain amount of money in mind. And the issue is how do you whack it up? How do you divide it up? And how do you get the plaintiffs to accept that? Is that typically how it presents when you get involved? Not typically, that's one way you get involved. Another way you get involved is the plaintiff lawyer trying to avoid years of uncertain, costly litigation, comes to me and says, we'd like to mediate this case and avoid rolling the dice in the courtroom. And another way, and a very prominent way, is it's not mediation at all. The United States government after 9-11 decides we are gonna create a claims program we are going to ask Ken Feinberg to design and administer the program. It's non-adversarial. It's not like the, 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 the terrorists are involved. They're dead. And, and it's more a claims administration program aimed not at pointing fingers of blame, but compensating the victims and their families. So let's, I mean, what's a good way to refer to those sort of fund division cases where there's a certain amount of money available and, and it's not really an adversarial proceeding in the background, as opposed to an adversarial proceeding where you're trying to wrap up a whole family of potential claims. That's right. There's mediation, adversarial with a neutral. There's arbitration, adversarial with an arbitrator. And then there's the victim compensation funds that are alternative dispute resolution, but they are neither mediation nor arbitration. They stand alone where there is a pot of money and Feinberg is requested by the United States or a state or a city or a private party like BP or General Motors. Here's the money, process the claims voluntarily and try and incentivize people who are would-be plaintiffs, victims, to take advantage of a claims program that will be quick and efficient and generous. Those are the options. And so we have an adversarial situation, whether the defense comes to you and said, you know, Ken, would you help us? Can you help us out on this? Or the plaintiff comes to you with the same kind of request. You're getting the request from one side. They're not coming to you jointly. What can you do at that point? Do you reach for the phone well, and call up the other side or what do you do? I won't call up the other side. If one side comes to me and says, we want you to immediate or arbitrate, fine. Is the other side interested? It takes two or more to effectuate this. And usually if one side comes to me, after talking with me, they will go to the other side. Um, I would also say that on, on, I, I bet you half the time, both come to me at the same time. They've already talked. And they've decided we want to mediate. We need you to come in a neutral 
a recognized, uh, credible person and help us get to yes. All right. So one side has come to you of singly or where they've come to you jointly. Is it typically the case that they already have in mind a certain amount of money that the defense is prepared to put up to resolve all these claims? Or does that then become the first subject of discussion? That becomes the fifth, sixth or seventh <laughs> subject of discussion. Well, tell the us how that goes. The preliminary questions concern schedule, the terms and conditions of the mediation, who will be participating, when will it occur, what will be the mediation budget, what will be the rules governing the mediation. After all of that infrastructure is worked out, usually over an hour or an hour and a half, then we turn our attention to the merits of the dispute. And that leads to the mediator being educated by each side. The amount of money is not uh, um, detailed in advance or known. That's a big issue. How much is the value of a settlement? That's the, that is one of the major issues, not the only issue, but the major issue. And you go from there. And so that at that point, it's kind of like a, a, a typical mediation where, where you just you don't may not you're not a mass mediation where you have multiple, multiple large numbers of plaintiffs, but where you have two parties talking and trying to find common ground. And you're talking about the merits of the case, helping them trying to evaluate it, helping them to see the strengths and weaknesses of the respective cases and see if you can get them to agree on an amount. Is that essentially how that goes? That is essentially exactly how it goes. It takes usually, uh, I would say on average, two days. The first day, the parties like to emote and vent. But on the second day, realizing this is it, about 90% of the time, we reach an agreement. Right. Can you just... I can't compel it. They reach an agreement on their own with my assistance. And, and just to give uh, people who may not be familiar with your career, uh, just to give them some examples of these types of adversarial situations where you've been involved in mediations and trying to re reach first kind of a global number and then design a way to how to sort of divide that up among the potential plaintiffs. What would be some of the cases that are known publicly that you've been involved in that are of this nature? The Agent Orange Vietnam veterans class action in the 1980s when Vietnam veterans asserted that they were physically injured with illnesses caused by exposure to the herbicide, Agent Orange, while serving in Vietnam. And that was a huge class where we had to mediate a settlement before Judge Jack Weinstein, federal district judge, brilliant jurist, in the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn. That was one. The closing of the Shoreham nuclear plant on Long Island where the state of New York decided it was time to close the plant for safety reasons. And the, um, the utility fought it tooth and nail. We had a mediation. We worked it out. The plant was closed in an orderly way. Uh, and, and we managed to resolve that, that dispute. Then there have been, you know, literally thousands of asbestos cases, personal injury. There have been uh, hundreds of DES, anti-pregnancy drug Eli Lilly cases. Over the last, um, I would say, uh, 40 years, uh, mediated very high visibility disputes um, where uh, emotion rings, um, you know, rules high. 
And you've got to work with the parties and manage to get a settlement, which we usually do. Are cases where you have large numbers of claimants or where there's, there, it's in the public eye, are those harder from your standpoint to mediate than you know, the more simpler one party on another party type of case? Is it, is it more complicated? Are there different things you have to take into account? It's more difficult for two reasons. First, when you are mediating and helping the parties negotiate a large settlement involving hundreds or thousands of people, like Agent Orange, for example, the issue is not only how much money will settle the case, but even after you get that money in the till, even after the defendant agrees, you then have to move on to the very complicated problem of allocating the money among hundreds or thousands of claimants. And that is extremely emotional, emotional. And you don't find that degree of emotion. There's some, but it's not the same when you're you know, mediating the dispute involving two Fortune 500 companies or one plaintiff killed in an automobile accident with the insurance company. I mean, that can be pretty emotional, but it's not when you've got thousands of claimants that have died. And uh, that's why it makes it more complex. All right, so you have one of these mass claim actions. You've gotten the parties together. You've gone through the process that you described. And at the, you've gotten the parties to reach agreement on a number. And now, as you say, you've got to come up with a way, uh, a logical and a way that people will accept uh, of kind of dividing that up. And what are some of the different ways that you do that? Well, one, one common way you do it, more important than even dividing up the money, is the process. You want to be very transparent. No hidden agendas. Here's the protocol that will govern such issues as the criteria for eligibility, the methodology for calculating damages, the proof requirements, the right to a hearing. I mean, the first thing you do before you start distributing money is you set up a very transparent, specific, public process that will be used by the mediator or now the claims administrator in allocating available proceeds to individuals. And for example, after the Boston Marathon bombings in 2015 on Patriots Day in Boston, I had to distribute $62 million to the families of the four who died and the 240 that were injured, physically injured by the bombings. Well, I published a transparent protocol Draft. What does everybody think about this? In other words, the four dead, I'm proposing that they each receive two and a half million dollars each, regardless of age and circumstance. Did, all did, live. Did, is that a number that you came up with? I came up with that number. Seemed about right. That that was very similar to what we paid in 9-11 for a death claim. So I had some basis for that number. I didn't just pick it out of the sky. And then for everybody who was physically injured, don't send me medical records. I haven't got time for that. People want the speed, efficiency, get the money out the door. All I want to know in Boston, those 240 people, how long were you in the hospital as a result of the bombings? 
If you were in the hospital for over a month, $900,000. Three weeks, $800,000. Two weeks, $700,000. Just attached to the claim form, a letter from the hospital. Mary Smith was admitted on Patriot's Day and was released four days later. Okay, four days, we'll give you $100,000. And it's rough justice, but the goal, get money out the door fast so people receive the benefit of an administrative um, process. And that's what we did. So are, are, those, are those numbers that you come up with, are those the subject of negotiation or, I mean, how do you come up with them? I mean, these are, this well, is obviously an extremely difficult thing to do. Well, it's not as difficult as you think. First of all, how do I come up with numbers? Well, how much money do I have? I mean, that goes a long way in how you're going to divide up money. I mean, do you have 62 million, as we did in the Boston Marathon bombings? Or do we have 31 million that we had in the Pulse nightclub terrorist attack in Orlando, Florida? Do we have 8 million, like we had after the Virginia Tech students were killed, the Virginia Tech shootings? I mean, start off with your pot, the pot that you've got. Now, sometimes you have an unlimited pot. There is no fixed amount, 9-11. The Congress delegated it to me, spend whatever you need out of petty cash from the U.S. Treasury. BP oil spill. BP, at President Obama's insistence, fronted $20 billion. Well, my goodness, that's unlimited. $20 billion for death and physical injury and business interruption losses. So how much money do you have? How many dead and how many physically injured? And do you have enough money to even compensate um, emergency treatment? No hospital overnight. You went, went into the emergency room. They stitched you up, sent you home. How much money do you have to allocate among classified tiered claimants? And that's how you do it. All right. So how much money do you have? How many potential claimants are there? In the Boston Marathon bombing, you used as the metric how long you were in the hospital. Are there other metrics that you've used in other situations rather than length of hospital stay? Of course. In the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund, don't forget, Congress passed a statute setting up the fund which required that I, I track state tort law in calculating damages. Well, Unlike the Boston Marathon, I had to calculate the economic loss suffered by the victim. The banker, the stockbroker, injured more than the waiter, the busboy, the cop, the fireman, the soldier. That, that's the American legal system. So in, in 9-11, 7,300 people applied, 5,300 were eligible, and they all received a different amount of money. And they had to sign a release. I will not sue the World Trade Center or the airlines. So the criteria that you use and the rules that you establish are tied very much to whether the program is a true alternative to the legal system, like 9-11, like right. BP, or so is a, a gift from the American people, like the Boston Marathon bombing. That was all privately, private money donated by the American people. So in 9-11, it was an effort to approximate what the civil justice system would have delivered in terms of tort compensation. Exactly right. 
Exactly right. And, and, and then the BP oil spill, was it the same or different? Same, same. If you sue BP for either death, injury, or business interruption or economic loss, I couldn't fish. I'm a, I'm a fisherman and I couldn't fish in the Gulf of Mexico because of the oil. They shut the uh, fishing lanes down or I couldn't shrimp. There you're, you're a judge and jury. You're in the tort system. Ken Feinberg will calculate economic loss and, and um, compensate voluntarily. <laughs> if you want to take it. Everybody takes it. Well, I mean, you get all these applications or claim forms, whatever you call them. There must be some determination that's made on the intake about is this person actually eligible, whether it's BP or 9-11. There may be a claim made and there's a question around it. I don't know how maybe it's obvious on the face of the claim or I don't know whether you do some investigation. How do you sort through the claims that are going to be accepted where liability then is assumed and they're going to go through the process versus those that are not going to go through the process and are not going to be accepted? You are, you are asking excellent questions here today. In the BP oil spill, let's use that as an example. I received in 16 months 1,250,000 claims from 50 states and 35 foreign countries, all right? Build it and they will come. They came out of the woodwork. Now, out of the 1,250,000 claims, we declared eligible less than 50%, about 550,000 claims. The others either couldn't demonstrate a, a direct link, approximate link between the oil spill and their alleged damage, or they didn't have any corroboration, no proof. I'm a fisherman and I lost $100,000. Well, where is the evidence that you're a fisherman? Oh, well, well were, 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 you ask, were you asking then in the BP oil spill that you not only submit a claim, but you had to submit some type of proof? And if so, what, what, what were you looking for? What did they need to submit? If you're a fisherman in, in Louisiana, or if you're a commercial fisherman, you have to have a fishing license, a commercial fishing. Where is it? Uh, you say you lost $100,000. Where's your tax return? Showing me a hundred thousand dollar income. I mean, you got to show me. I can't just give away money based on trust me. That doesn't work. And you have to have a principal program. So issues of eligibility in the Gulf, issues of proof in the Gulf, the calculation of damages in the Gulf, and the willingness of the victim to sign a release that I won't sue BP. All of that had to be churned and considered during the 16 months. And we still paid out about six and a half billion dollars in, in a little over a year. Well, I assume in that process, you must have had just very significant support. I assume you don't sit down and review over a million claims and whatever they've submitted in support of it. You must have had a staff. And can you tell us a little bit what that, what that was like? The BP oil spill was so gigantic in terms of claims, and so pervasive in the Gulf of Mexico, at the height of that program, I had hired about 4,000 people to assist me, claims adjusters, accountants, appraisers, uh, anti-fraud unit. We, I, was, I, I think BP was spending something like $30 million a month to 
fund the infrastructure needed to provide quick, streamlined compensation to eligible claimants. Well, what is there in, in this process, uh, either in determining eligibility or determining where someone fits in terms of the different gradations of payouts there would be, is there any role for the claimant's lawyers? Could they argue with you, say, Ken, you wrongly rejected this claim. You know, you're, you don't understand the proof we've submitted. You know, it's not fair for you to base this solely on the number of days in the hospital. You've got to hear me out, Ken. There's something else you have to take into account. Is there a role for the lawyers in these? Sure. I'm a lawyer. I like lawyers. If lawyers represent clients and they get a payment determination letter from me saying your client is eligible for X dollars or get a letter that your client has been reviewed and is ineligible, not satisfying the criteria. If the lawyers want to engage me and, and assert that I made a mistake or whatever and appeal to me directly, that's fine. I, I don't mind that. Now, remember, in these programs where you're not signing a release, like the Boston Marathon or Virginia Tech or Pulse Nightclub or Sandy Hook Elementary School, many of the claimants make the claim pro se. They don't want a lawyer. They don't need a lawyer. And they don't want to pay the lawyer for what is essentially a gift. And it's found money. And you can process the claim with the help of the administrator. It's non-adversarial. If you want a lawyer, by all means, it's fine. But that's up to the individual claimant. I would assume that in situations which are adversarial, where there is the litigation or potential litigation in the background, a release is always part of the deal. That's right. I'm not sure why it should be a part of the deal. I've found that, that in these private programs like Boston Marathon, where no release is required. People can take the money and sue if they want. They don't. That's, inter that's interesting. Very interesting why that's so. But I would say that where there's a release involved, overwhelmingly, since the claimant has an obligation to sign, I won't sue, overwhelmingly, they have lawyers and I work with their lawyers. In any of these cases, has there been an oversight role for the court? I mean, and you're administering these claims? Some of them. Not in 9-11. <laughs> in 9-11, the federal statute said there is no access to the courts. They deliberately carved the courts out of it. In the BP oil spill, yes. People, if they wanted to, could, could run to the U.S. District Court in New Orleans, Cal Barbier, who supported my program 100%. And if they did go to him, he basically said, look, Mr. Feinberg's doing a good job, leave him alone. But um, most of these cases, there's no real access to the courts. Right. These are uh, on a parallel track with the courts. And is that because basically the parties, the lawyers, lawyers for the class or claimants have entered into some agreement that says that Ken Feinberg's going to resolve this and that's going to be the final uh, resolution? And there isn't a role for the court, or is it because the courts sign something, saying, given an order saying, no, what Ken does is final? The courts don't have any jurisdiction. In 9-11, Congress carved the courts out of it. In the Boston Marathon, no courts. This is gift. This is a gift from the American people. If you, You're going to obviously take the money. You don't have to sign away any rights. It's very rare now. 
Agent Orange, of course, that's court supervised. Judge Weinstein, it's a class. BP, technically supervised by Judge Barbier pursuant to the uh, Oil Pollution Act. But for the most part, these programs rarely have court intervention or court appellate power. They're not involved at all. You were also involved in the General Motors ignition switch uh, cases as well. There were, I don't know how many cases, thousands of cases, hundreds of cases. Hundreds. What what, what was your role uh, in, in those cases? General Motors on its own, like BP and the oil spill to a sense, but even better. General Motors decided on its own unilaterally. We better, Congress is all over us on this, on this ignition switch defect. We better set up a 9-11 type program, have Ken Feinberg with that brand and that credibility, design and administer the program. We'll pay all eligible claims and we'll let Ken run it. And that program in one year, we distributed about $600 million dollars to, I don't know, 140, 150 families who lost loved ones or were physically injured. That was a purely private settlement, voluntary. We resolved about 92% of all the claims. So General Motors came to you on its own? On its own. With great congressional pressure. I mean, they had been been required to appear in Congress. I was there with the uh, CEO Mary Barra, we heard from uh, senators and House members, and General Motors' reputation, it decided we better uh, set up this program, and it worked very, very well. I mean, did they come to you with a, a fixed sum of money that they said they had available that they're prepared to distribute, or was it just unlimited? Unlimited. Like BP was unlimited, General Motors was unlimited, 9-11 was unlimited. Most of these other private gift programs, like the Boston Marathon, Virginia Tech, um, uh, the Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, those are all limited by the amount of donated money that has come in from private companies and private individuals. Isn't that extraordinary that a company like General Motors or British Petroleum would say, we're prepared to accept liability and we will pay unlimited amounts? I mean, it's hard for me to even wrap my my head around that. No, I think that that BP, when they announced that they're prepared to front $20 billion, well, I mean, I told BP, there's no way in a million years that I would ever have a program that would pay $20 billion. And that's just not realistic. So they knew they had enough money. And I think these companies, when they set up these unlimited programs, they have confidence that a process can be created and managed with care and with fairness that will um, resolve them of their legal liability, civil litigation liability, at a cost-effective price. And that's exactly what happens. Now, much more surprising to me, I still am in disbelief, actually. When there is a tragedy and just private citizens send in money, Pay to the order of the Sandy Hook first graders. Pay to the order of El Baldi in Texas with the 19 dead. Pay to the order of Buffalo. Pay to the order of Virginia Tech victims. Pay to the order of uh, uh, Sandy Hook. Pay to the order of uh, Aurora, Colorado, the Dark Knight movie shows. What I've learned, 
John, never underestimate the charitable impulse of the American people. It is astounding to me how people will read about a tragedy, watch on cable news, cut checks, send them to the, to the fund administrator. Please help this community, help these families. The emotional outpouring from the American people in many of these uh, tragedies is really to me unique. Nowhere else in the world you have that charitable ethos as part of your heritage. It's amazing. I think it goes back to the Puritans in New England in the 17th century in the city on the hill and we are one community and we will rally around the less fortunate and it's something. Actually, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, to me, it's more surprising that a large for-profit corporation that wants to, its even if it's facing hearings before Congress and facing all these claims, would come to you and say, here's our checkbook, you fill in the numbers. <laughs> to me, well, that's surprising. Well, there's two reasons for that, and you have just mentioned. First, what's the alternative? They are very concerned, GM, BP, that they're going to get caught up in the coils of the American legal system. They don't want it. They know what that means. And secondly, it's, a lot of it's reputational. And their desire to avoid every day for the next two years front page stories about what they did allegedly did wrong. And also, I do think over the years that they've come to me with a certain credibility that I've got, that they feel, well, we're not really winging it, John, because, you know, Feinberg did this one and this one and this one and this one, and it seemed to work. So it's a it's a an alternative that we want to we want to take go with and um, it works. Have you ever heard people say, well, we shouldn't use Feinberg because he's more plaintiff oriented or we shouldn't use Feinberg because he's more defense oriented? I mean, every day, you... every day. <laughs> both sides, the defendants say I'm too plaintiff oriented. The plaintiffs say I'm too defendant oriented. I must be doing something right. <laughs> Both sides are worried, but um, uh, we get over that. I mean, what advice would you have? And maybe the answer is different if we're talking about a group of plaintiffs, lawyers in a mass tort situation uh, or a defendant that's facing a lot of claims and bad publicity and lengthy litigation. They're trying to figure on both sides. We want to get this behind us. What are the first steps we should be taking? What should we be thinking about? Based on your experience, what kind of advice would you have for parties in either situation? I would say the advice I would give those parties, first of all, if they're already asking me for advice, they're 85% of the way towards setting up some sort of alternative mechanism. The big problem in America today, I think with Fortune 500 companies and others, they don't even think this way. They only know the American legal system and the trial battle and the adversarial system. If they come to me, what is my advice? They're already seriously contemplating it. And I would say to them, spend a few weeks and sit down and see if we can work out and design a program that you think would be better than the alternative. The church, the Catholic church has done that with me for the last three years. My colleague, Camille Byros, 
has been going around the country resolving these sexual abuse cases brought against priests. Set up these programs, 23 different Catholic dioceses in a half a dozen states and paid out claims rather than having lawsuits brought against the church for failing to oversee priests. They, they evaluated the alternatives and decided that made sense. It must happen to you sometimes that uh, groups of claimants, lawyers, or the defense comes to you and say just what you said, you know, we need, we need help here, but somehow you can't get it off the ground. You can't design a process. You can't design a, you know, a claims, a tiering or grid that it just fails at the beginning. Very, very rare. I've learned a couple of things. If people come to me, plaintiffs and defendants, can how would we go about setting up a claims process? We're 85% there. A couple of times it's failed, but very rare. Also, if people come to me, John, and they say, we want to mediate a dispute, A versus B, we want to mediate. Well, if both sides have come to me saying we want to mediate and find a way to get to yes, 90% of the time, it's already a, uh, a done deal. Otherwise, they wouldn't be coming to me to talk about this jointly. Which of the cases that you've been involved in was the, the most difficult for you? 9, nine, nine can, can you talk a little bit about that and the what emotion. it was like and why it was yeah. so difficult? Yes, the emotion. All these programs have similarities in terms of, you know, eligibility and the methodology for calculating damages and the proof requirements. In 9-11... 2,893 families said goodbye on a beautiful day and never saw their family member again. Airplanes, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, they never said goodbye. Traumatic death, thousands of bodies never recovered, just dust, no body to bury. And the stories I heard I invited, wasn't required by statute, I did it by regulation. Any family that wants to come and see me privately, in confidence, come and see me. The stories I heard, I conducted about 950 separate hearings over 33 months. And the stories I heard were chilling. They were debilitating. Wait, 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 did, the, did you do this? as part of, of processing and evaluating the claims, or was it just to give them a chance to talk about the tragedy and their the loss? The latter. Half the people never came to see me. They grieved in private. The other half, 26-year-old woman comes to see me crying. Mr. Feinberg, I lost my husband in the World Trade Center. He was a fireman. And he left me with our two children, six and four. Now, I've got a letter from you that you're going to give me two and a half million dollars tax-free. I want it in 30 days. I said, Mrs. Jones, 30 days, this is U.S. Treasury money. I've got to submit the claim, and then they've got to review and make sure there are no liens, and it's, you know, it's taxpayer money. You're going to get a U.S. Treasury check. Why do you need it in 30 days? Why not 60 days? You'll get it, 90 days maybe. You'll get the money. 
No. 30 days. Why? Why? I'll tell you why, Mr. Feinberg. I have terminal cancer. I have 10 weeks to live. My husband was going to survive me and take care of our two little ones. Now they're going to be orphans. And I, while I still have my faculties, I've got to now set up a trust and get a guardian ad litem. And I've got to make sure the money is protected. And I don't have time. You've got to help me. We ran down to the treasury. We hand carried the check through the process. We got it to her. Eight weeks later, she died. Yeah. Now, you, you, when people say, why the 9-11 fund? The emotional horror of story after story after story that I heard. That'll be the same. Stability. Uh, I mean, that, that just had to have been gut-wrenching and that that must one right after that, another one that, right after. i mean i i can't imagine what that was like and that it must uh, reverberate in your in your brain to this day to this day mr feinberg i lost my husband at the world trade center he was a fireman when he ran to the world trade center on the fire truck he saw that 20 people were trapped in the lobby of one world trade center he ran in and brought all 20 to safety. He saw that another 20 were trapped. He ran back in a second time, brought them to safety. While he was running across the World Trade Center Plaza, he was killed when somebody jumped from the 103rd floor and hit him like a missile, killing them both. If he had taken one step either way, Mr. Feinberg, he'd be here today. Don't tell me there's a God. No God would allow something like that to happen to my, to my husband. The emotional toll that, that these claims administration cases take on you after tragedy, 9-11, BP rig explosion that killed 15 people, GM ignition switch failure, Catholic Church, these sexually abused by priests, uh, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on you. I can, I can absolutely imagine. Well, this has been fascinating. I mean, your, your career uh, that you've been involved in so many uh, important things, and you've earned such a fabulous reputation for uh, conducting processes which are people perceive to be fair and are, are acceptable. Your career and your accomplishments speak for yourself. So I thank you on behalf of the American people for what you've done. And thank you for this discussion. It's been very interesting. Honored by the invitation and the incredibly cogent questions. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Podcast Partners.